0: And Augustine's like, oh, this is great. You're gonna see how this comes to play in a minute. But then he comes in and like he starts listing 14 points. Um and just just horrendous stuff. And you can actually look at August or you can look at Pelagius' writings and they completely refute it. Like what he was writing before these accusations, refute it. And if we if we are being as critical of him as we could, he affirmed half of one fourteenth. So Pelagius <laughs> was 128th guilty of the claims Augustine levied against him.
1: Of Pelagianism. A,
0: a Pelagian. <laughs> yeah, Pelagius was 128th Pelagian.
2: Hi guys, welcome to the church split. My name is Will, and we have Brian with us today, and also a special guest, but we'll get there in a minute, but do not forget to like and sub to the channel, and leave a comment. It does help the algorithm, but you guys know what we do here. We just help you escape your echo chamber, learn something biblical, and sometimes that means we have to challenge the status quo in some areas, or talk about something that's not very popular, but we're all about unity through diversity with our brothers in Christ, And that's really important. But uh, today I am extremely excited to have somebody I actually agree with a lot on here. And I will go ahead and put my seal there. That way people know so they don't just attack him. (laughs) But uh, we're going to have Warren McGrew on with Idol Killer. And he is here in the house. And we're going to talk about a lot of uh, doctrines today that are taught and promulgated throughout the church that a lot of people don't quite realize the implications of some of these doctrines that had just been accepted as truth but historically speaking were not always considered so so anyway uh Warren thank you so much for being on our channel how you doing man
0: man i'm I'm thrilled to be here gentlemen i am I'm truly uh truly excited looking forward to it I appreciate the opportunity to come on and get to know you both a little bit better and and uh, waste some of a uh, theology geeks out there
2: some of their time. So <laughs> perfect. Yeah, we're all about that. Yeah, I've listened to way too much of it while I'm at work. Uh, I always have an earbud in. and People are like, what are you listening to? And I'm like, oh, this about this topic. And like, what is that? And I'm like, never mind. I just won't bore you with the details. <laughs> well, I think a shout out to some of our mutual followers that put us
1: in touch with each other because we we both kind of looked at each other's channels like these are pretty cool. So, you know, Will and I binged quite a bit of Idol killer recently because like th- these are some great videos. So um, if you like our content, please go check out Idol killer because you're going to love it. i I think you're really going to enjoy his style, his presentation, and he's got some deep research, too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's actually a deep well um, of knowledge there and research. He's very well researched. He's not throwing things together. And, yeah, the way we found out about each other was we had a mutual follower on Twitter. uh, And they literally said, hey, I will give you five more dollars a month on Patreon to have (laughs) Idol Killer and you guys interact because I listen to your guys' stuff while at work. And this person's in seminary, and they said it helps pass the time while they're at work in a warehouse. And I was like, you know, you didn't have to bribe me. You just have to say, <laughs> hey, there's a guy you should have on. And I would have reached out. It's fine. But uh, I definitely appreciate it, and I, I can now see why this person likes both of our channels, because there's a lot of similarities between us. So definitely. if you like the fact that we'll split churches over ch- controversy, you're going to like Idol Killer. Who, what's your slogan, Warren? uh, destroying sacred cows for the cause of Christ. (laughs) That's so good. (laughs) That's so good. Um, so anyway, all right, Warren. So you, uh, go ahead and tell a little bit about your background. I think it'll help people get a frame of reference on who you are, what you're all about and all that good stuff.
0: Uh, yeah. So, um, I was a, I was a Calvinist for many, many years. Um, Once you leave a a group like that, you never really truly ever were a Calvinist. But in my mind, uh, I was one for about 30 years. Um, I I was raised into a a hyper-Calvinist family. We were very fatalistic. We believed everything that came to pass was decreed by God. I would say it was a consistent form of Calvinism. But as I grew, I had a lot of opportunities to question it, a lot of reasons to challenge it. Um, but by the time I'm in my, I'd say, early 20s, say around twenty twenty one, 21, I had embraced a very high form of Calvinism, um, very committed to it, dedicated to it. And then as I got older, I started reading the Bible and I started seeing some problems. And um, I had a crisis, I wouldn't would say crisis of faith, uh, but a crisis of doctrine where I, I said, I, I believe and trust in Christ, but I don't even know what it means to be a Christian anymore. Once 30 years of belief were kind of shown to be false. And uh, that kind of set me on a, uh, a, I hate the term, but journey. I hate that term. It's <laughs> so cliche. I, I went on a journey. No, no, I began, I began a process where I was obsessive, and I just started studying the Bible 20 to 40 hours, sometimes more. Uh, a week, my, my poor wife would come in and she's like, well, here you are. You're, you're listening to a guy defend this. I just left and came back. And now you're listening to a guy attack that same doctrine. <laughs> what, what are you doing? And I said, well, I want to hear the full spectrum so I'm not in an echo chamber. I want to hear everything right with it, everything wrong with it, and kind of weigh it in line with Scripture. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, so I come from a Reformed background. Um was brought out of that uh, about seven-ish years ago and and now I'm just kind of focused on trying to get to, um, and this term may or may not have any meaning, but, but to a pre-Augustinian orthodoxy. Like I want to know what the disciples believed, what they taught their apostles, or what the apostles believed, what they taught their disciples, and then the, the second or third generation of church fathers, what did they believe as a general consensus? What do we see revealed like in the Didache um, before that Augustinian kind of U-turn occurred? So that's really where I explore. But then I also bring in um, other other weird topics that that aren't necessarily clearly laid out in the early church but have implications because that's – we explore pretty much
2: everything. So then now you've moved – so yeah, you definitely move forward from Calvinism that you and Brian both have that.
1: Yeah, I, similar story and about the same amount of time ago where I was like, yeah, and it was kind of help from my wife. She grew up Baptist, and, um, you know, part of the thing we did before we got married was, was go meet each other's pastors and kind of figure out what church we wanted to go to, and— uh she really kind of helped wreck infant baptism for me pretty quick at the beginning, and that was kind of my kind of beginning of my journey <laughs> away from Calvinism. And 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 it's it is kind of fascinating when you kind of you kind of shed some of those ingrained beliefs that you had and start just kind of attacking the Bible for for new truth. And you're like, what what do I not know? What did I have as an assumption that wasn't real? And I hearing you say that same thing, it's like, oh boy, yeah, that's. It's, it's disconcerting, but it's also exciting.
0: (laughs) Well, what was interesting was, um, so a a very brief, very brief background and there's nothing brief about me. So that, that, that's not honest. (laughs) That's Uh, fine. Go for it. uh, Same. So I met my wife when I was a 28 year old dedicated hermit. I'm never getting married. Uh, my, my parents had been married enough, you know, and I was like, um, I'm never getting married. I, I, I'd rather be single and lonely than married and miserable. I had a very low view of marriage. And then I met my wife and six months later, we're we're married, very uh, great lady. And immediately I set on trying to indoctrinate her into Calvinism, like a good Calvinist husband, like this is, I'm the spiritual head and and I want to lead you in truth. And Calvinism is the gospel. So this is where we're going. Uh, But I was also a wimp. And so I was like doing it gently. Uh, but then we had uh, my son, and then uh, like he was he was born three years after we were married. Then twenty months later we had our daughter, and two years after her we had triplet girls. It was wow. like a surprise
2: triplets. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. So my third, our third pregnancy turned into three. So I have uh, five children, four daughters, and my oldest is a boy. And um, I was I was studying the uh, statistics associated with parents of multiples, and they were basically like you're getting divorced. Just, just <laughs> oh. be prepared. It, it, it's like the divorce rate in America is like less than 50% survive and parents of multiples. It was like 18 or 21%. I think it was, it was very, it was abysmal. Oh boy. Yikes. Financial, the emotional, all this. So I set my wife down. I said, honey, they say if you can make it two years after having triplets, that like most marriages are after that are, are never going to fail. So I said, two years. And she's like, you're just being dramatic. She hates when I tell this story. <laughs> she's like, you're just being dramatic. You didn't marry, you know, some some wimpy, you know, um, girl that, that doesn't honor her vows or take it seriously. She goes, I can't believe you're even telling me this. I said, no, this is just, just real-world data. Like, let's be prepared to attack this thing together. And, uh, oh, people always ask, them, like, how did you handle triplets? It was it was her. Like, I married so out of my league. Um <laughs> Just an amazing lady. And speaking of being out of my league, uh, the triplets were about six months old. And my wife came in and she said, I'm taking the whole whole family. We're going to my mom's, like my mother-in-law's. And you have the whole Saturday to do whatever you want. And I was like, what? Six months. I haven't had five minutes. You're giving me a whole day? Like, I need to nap. I need to eat. I need to nap again. I need to go see a movie. And go hang out with my friends. I'm a big board game geek kind of guy too, you know. So I was like, maybe we can get a board game going. And I walk upstairs to go take a nap and I see my Bible. And uh, I go, Lord, I haven't spent much time with you. That's really what I should be doing first. Like, you know. So I walk over, I pick up my Bible, start reading. And that's when, about an hour and a half after that, the whole system just came down. And I was terrified. And my wife came home that night. And I had been in prayer. Like, it had wrecked my day. Like, I had a whole day to myself. I did not nap. I did not oh, no. I did not go see my friends. I wasn't visiting a movie. And an hour and a half later, I wasn't a Calvinist anymore. But the time after that was, what What am I? You know, like, what is this? What does it even mean? And I'm, I'm having an existential crisis. My wife comes in. She goes, what did you do today? And I was like, oh, not much. And I didn't <laughs> want to tell her what I found. <laughs> because I didn't have the answers. I just knew the answers I did have were false. All, all I knew was Christ. And this was on a Saturday. So one thing you need to know about my family is we're the guys that are always 15 to 20 minutes late to church. So I, I blame that on the children, but really it's, it's the parenting. Uh, we're just not prepared. Honesty <laughs> <And>, is good. <laughs> and I blame it on the parents, but truly my wife is ready 15 minutes ahead of me. I'm just slow. Um, but so this morning, I get to church and I am. Um, I mean, we're, we're early, man. We're super early. The pastor's like the grews. What are they doing here? Like, you 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 got here? We still have coffee and donuts. Like you guys <laughs> never make any time for coffee and donuts. And uh, started asking my pastor and my Sunday school teacher uh, some of the stuff that I discovered during that that time the night before. Uh-oh. And uh, they just said, "Be it be at peace, brother. We know these things teach it." Like, be at peace. And I said, well, I'm just a lay person. You guys read and write and speak, you know, Hebrew and Greek. And, you know, it's why I come here. You're brilliant men. And uh, and I said, I trust you. But will you spend a week and look into what I just said? And they're like, yeah, we'll do that. And the next Sunday I came back and my Sunday school teacher was like hesitant. I had to kind of, you know, do the juke moves where you're kind of (laughs) trying to go after me, trying to get out without talking to me. And, um... He said, Warren, I looked into it, and uh, you're right. Like, Psalm 5 doesn't teach total depravity. And uh, he said, I, I thought it did. But we know it's a biblical doctrine because these other texts teach it. And I said, I said David, I looked into those, and they don't teach it either. Oh, wow. And it was like, he got hit with a two-by-four. And he's like, they have to. And I said, well, spend some more weeks and let me know. And, um, yeah. So that's kind of how I, I got out of the whole Calvinistic movement. It's, it's kind of the journey, that kind of birth where I am today. I love Calvinists. This is one of the things that a lot of people don't understand about me. I have family, friends that are still Calvinist. I don't say Calvinists aren't saved. Uh, I say Calvinism is a problem. It's a problem that hampers your view of God, yourself. It can put you at peril. It can be like trying to run a marathon with a 50 pound weight strapped to your ankle, but, but Calvinism is the problem. I love Calvinists. And sometimes when you're attacking an ideology or a presupposition, people tend to take it personal and they'll say, why are you insulting me? And it's like, no, no, I'm not insulting you. I I was once deceived into believing that as well. Anything I'm saying about your ability to believe it reflects on me because I believed it probably more than you did. I defended it much more aggressively than you did. So any criticism I have of you for affirming it, I have to own as my own failing. So it's not me attacking you; it's me attacking this thing that I think misrepresents who God is. But I can go on and on and on about that. I think you guys know I'm I'm not short of words. Or <laughs> well,
1: well, I just think it's cool that your Sunday school teacher was like, "Yeah, I'll look into it." Like that's I I think that's really cool. That at least he's like, well, "Let me let me dive into this too with you." I think that's really cool. I hope more Sunday school teachers would take that tactic instead of just going, "No, you're wrong."
2: Yeah, instead of just easily labeling you as a heretic and saying you're you're denying the creeds or whatever, you know, he actually took time. I was oh, yeah, credit where credit's due on that. Yeah, and I it's the same thing. You know, I think we've all, all three of us here have all had some major positions that we've held and then felt that ground get taken right out from underneath us. Mm-hmm. And not because we were trying. You know, one of the biggest things I've been accused of is, well, you have a rebellious heart, and that's why you keep going against the grain. And I'm like, well, no, I mean, I, I, I do apparently have authority problems, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but don't. no, really, it's just the it's like, no, every time I would research something, trying to prove my point, everything I found uh, fell back against me. And then I realized either I keep saying that the facts are wrong or I changed my position. So I, I you know, good, good on you for doing that. Well, so this started you down this whole thing. And now you started Idle Killer. And uh, how long have you been doing Idol Killer?
0: Well, um, Idol Killer, Idol Killer started with me making videos on my cell phone. I would just sit down and I would record a video, and I would put it on my family's YouTube channel. So, if anything happened to me, you know, my kids would have something to look back on. And they'd go, "Why was Dad so weird?" Or what weird belief? <laughs> and and so people were coming to my, and I had like my testimony up there. And what I found were people were coming to the channel, the family's channel to hear my testimony and teachings and stuff. But then interspersed with that was like, you know, hear the McGrews go to, you know, Destin, Florida on vacation. And I'm like, that's not really the proper format. Like, I don't, I don't <laughs> mind being exposed and vulnerable, but I don't want, you know, people I don't know watching vacation videos. And uh, so then I, I said, you know, I'm going to create this other channel and just basically do the same thing. And so my production wasn't great. I wasn't approaching it with branding. I wasn't trying to market it. It was just me going, all right, this is where I'm at. It's what I'm thinking about. I'm just going to talk. But then uh, it started taking off and a lot of brothers were coming to me and saying, you should take this seriously. Like not just the content, but the production and the, the way that you're putting all this stuff together. And you really should think about like promoting this. And, um, I thought nobody wants to hear what I have to say, you know, like <laughs> my, my, my family doesn't, you know, they don't want to listen to me when in 20 years from now, you know, but, uh, so I started, I started, um, kind of trying to create more of a, a platform really just to kind of share. And I don't, I don't like to talk about something that I haven't seriously studied that I have an opinion on. Um, and if, if we, if we do go that direction, then I'm just gonna be as transparent as I can be and say, well, you know, that's, I haven't considered that or that's an interesting angle I'll have to look into later. So with Idol Killer, it started off with this teaching angle, um, but then because I love, I love uh, fresh perspectives and I like to be challenged. And I like to hear different ideas. So I started bringing on guests and, um, you know, and, and I thought what better first guest for a channel that's known for being anti-Calvinism than a Calvinist. And so I brought on um, a gentleman, uh, Chris Date, and we sat and talked about his uh, views on annihilationism. And that's very out of step with Calvinism. And so, you know, we were able to kind of have this dialogue. And then we brought on another guest and um, we're talking about, she, she was an expert on uh, the, the history of Pelagius. She's a Oxford or Cambridge uh, professor. Brilliant, brilliant woman. Um,
2: Great interview, that, by the way.
0: Uh, I, I loved it. And um, and then I had an interview with a, a gentleman who's a chaplain in the military. And in the middle of the interview, his base comes under middle missile, ta- missile attack. And they're hit three separate times. Um, and I, it's, to my knowledge, I'm the only one with, with video of the missile attack. But it's just him and I talking. Huh. And after the missile hit, he put on his flat jacket, his helmet, and he comes back over and he goes, "So we were talking about the spiritual condition of infants." And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> it just, it just got hit with missiles. Like I'm sitting here, I'm like, "Is this even happening?" Like, like my, my little channel, you know. I'm interviewing a guy, and I feel like I'm on CNN or something. And I'm like, "Don't you need to like go somewhere or like shoot somebody or like help?" Somebody? <laughs> I don't know what to do here. And he's like, no, no, they just tell us to shelter in place. And so we'll just keep talking and brilliant man. And I got to get him back for, um, uh, part two to conclude that interview, but just, so I started bringing in some, some really interesting guests to try and add some diverse opinions because I killer is, is just me and I'm only entertaining and, and, and knowledgeable on so much. So I like to have other views. And so I uh, do killer is uh, 50% teaching and 50% polemics. So, I like to. I, I love memes. I love uh, funny videos. I have um, a, a very. I have a, a fatalistic uh, case of, of dad jokes. Um, I, have dad <laughs> I knew I liked you. And and so sometimes people will watch my stuff and they're like, I know you think that's funny, but I don't get that at all. <laughs> and then I'll have other I'll have other people come on and they're like, this is brilliant. I'm sharing it, and I'm like. How are you even understanding my humor right now? I'm worried about. It. Um, so there's a good blend. I try to I try to keep the, the content fresh, but but yeah, that's that's where Idol Killer is, and and where where we're headed um, is is really. I'm, I'm trying to get to the point where I can afford to do this full time and uh, and produce higher quality documentaries and and teaching resources.
2: Yeah, that's uh, that, that's. Awesome. And that's what I uh, that's our my goal with the church split is to be able to do this in a much larger capacity because I have a knack for research that I think you could probably uh, agree with me on this It's like I can do a lot of research but then be able to take the time to put the notes together to be able to present a good well thought out. Summary of said research with the proofs of res- the research enough because you're never going to be able to get the full novel out, but you could get enough of it out. It's, it's, it's so time consuming. So, uh, I mean, my King James only series that I did was probably the most exhausting thing I've ever done in my life. And <laughs> never again. I'm uh, just kidding. I want to do it more, but it's just hard. So, yeah, I think that's fantastic and that's hilarious. And I love your content so far. Um, so, I'm and I, there's still a lot more content for me to watch and I'm excited to keep doing it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah guys again if you haven't already go like and subscribe to the idol killer do you have a patreon because people just probably support you on that too
0: we we do we do have a patreon uh, i don't ever promote it um it's just i have links to it but i never bring it up i i um i just tell people to like comment share subscribe because like for me it's just about getting the content out there and i have i have a few patreons and uh i remember the the, the first time somebody came on and they're like hey we're gonna support you and i was like really? And they're like, yeah, you have a support link. And I was like, I don't know. I feel dirty. Like, you know, like you're paying me for this. And they're like, why'd you create the Patreon link? And I was like, because I'm, I'm spending a lot of money doing it. And they're like, well, then we're, we'd be happy to come alongside you and bless you. But um, I've had other people come in and I'm like, find another ministry. Like, you know, like, like somebody <laughs> that you'd support and, and give them your dollars. So like the, the Patreons that support me, they truly are like fellow idol killers. Uh, they're people that get the they get the, miss, the mission, they understand my heart, and they're like, Warren, we just want to tear down these false presuppositions and promote the living God. And so they, they really are part of the team.
2: Oh, well, that's awesome. Well, if any of our listeners want to go check that out too, they should. If they want to be fellow idol killers. After they've been uh, splitting churches. So uh, <laughs> so <laughs> killing anyway. idols might split churches, FYI. Yeah. Hey, yeah. let's do it. Uh, it but All right. Yeah. So let's get into some theology here because I am so excited to talk to another fellow theology nerd, especially one that didn't end up going the direction. So a lot of my friends, I've said this before, a lot of my friends from the IFB background that I have went reformed and I did not. And uh, so it's really funny because all my friends de- defected over there. I defected over here and I am like, I feel like a lone wolf half the time. In fact, it, it's such a rarity for uh, people who leave the IFB to not become reformed. I've actually got messages going, I am so glad I found you because after I left the IFB, all the people I kept finding were reformed. We're so thankful to find somebody who wasn't being was a calvinist and i was like oh well that's cool i mean i love my calvinist brothers and sisters but yes i definitely will have some serious disagreement in this area but i'll for me it's still a, a thing where it's like we seriously disagree but ser- seriously let's still sit down and watch the four-hour uh justice league movie that just dropped you know like let's, <laughs> right. so I, I it's it's not uh, uh linchpin for my friendship. So uh, let, I wanted to talk about a few of the pet topics that I've already watched extensively your positions on, but I'd like to get people to be curious as to what we're going to talk about here and maybe go check out some of your stuff. So my thought, my first thing was uh, total depravity and original sin. Now you've stirred the pot on this uh, quite a bit over over at Idol Killer. And uh, you know, I the first time for me that original sin kind of struck me was there is, uh, the way that we've been taught was wrong, was there's that passage in Ezekiel that straight up said that the children will not be held accountable for his father's sins. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Well, then how do you square that circle with Adam and passing it on to us? And I read the Genesis account because I, of course, I had to go back to the first Adam and I read through it. And then I noticed it said knowledge of good and evil And a few things there. So go ahead and wax eloquently for me, Warren. What's your thoughts on original sin? Well, you know, I like 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 all
0: Calvinists. I came to original sin through total depravity. I think I think that's I say all. I think the majority. I'll I'll put it that way. I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think most Calvinists come to original sin through total depravity, and that is this. hyperlize or hyper hyper um, view of uh, man's spiritual condition, but original sin. Original sin is a. Um, I'm trying to figure out how few of words uh, because I have many on this topic. <laughs> I'm, I'm going well. I know whoever the listeners are, they don't want to spend the next seven hours with me. <laughs> um, so uh, so original sin. Hmm, let me back up. Can I? Can I? I want to frame it according to what scripture says, why it evolved into original sin, and then how we arrived at total depravity. Because Go. <laughs> I think every Christian will acknowledge to some degree, there is progressive revelation. And this is often how original sin and total depravity are defended like the Trinity, right? Um, but I view them as separate doctrines that have to rise or fall on their own merits. So, uh, and I am Trinitarian, by the way, I don't want anybody misunderstanding me. Um, So original sin is based on the the Hebrew, where we have uh, this concept known as the yetzer. Uh, The yetzer is God's given drives and appetites and ambitions to mankind. So the reason why we hunger, why we desire fulfillment and intimacy, or why we have families or uh, go and start jobs or build houses, these are all God-given drives and appetites and desires. And when we use these rightly, it's known as the Yetzer Hatov, right? So it's like the good manifestation of these desires. And when we use them incorrectly, meaning we're not in submission to God, we're not loving Him or loving others, then uh, that's known as the Yetzer Hara, or the Yetzer Hara. Um, there's, I'm from Texas, so it might be the Yetzer Y'all. Um, <laughs> My pronunciation is always ripped apart on these on these uh, videos. You're going to get comments. There's a dad joke but, too, by yeah. the way. Liked it. <laughs> so the yetzer Yal, Now the yetzer the yetzer uh, hara is the uh, wicked manifestation of these good and godly desires that are just abused. So that is in the the Old Testament, <clears throat> and then when you get into the New, we've shifted gears and we're no longer in Hebrew, but we're now in Greek, and the Greek parallel would be epithumia. Um, And that is just the exact same concept, just a different word in Greek. And Jesus used this word to describe his own desires, and then Jesus would use this word to describe the evil desires of other people. So you can see how epithumia was just desire, and you had to look at the context to say, is it good or is it evil? What are you doing with it? Um, And you see, like, in 1 John, well... All right, I'm going to reveal my my scripture memorization isn't so great. But there's a there's a passage that says, uh, "Little children, let no one deceive you. He who does what is right is righteous, even as he is righteous. But he who does what is uh, uh, sinful or wicked uh, is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But it's talking about practicing. Are you practicing righteousness, the Yetzer Hato? Are you practicing wickedness, the Yetzer Hara? And you're developing a character by way of these behaviors. You're going to reap what you're sowing. Um, and so, in Genesis 8:21, we see God declare that the imagination of man's heart becomes set on evil by his young adult years, and that that Hebrew word is naor, which is the same word that describes the age of David when he faced Goliath, the age when men, men marry and have children. Uh, it's the age of young prostitutes. If you want to get a little spicy. Um, but it talks about something that happens to us over time. So we're not born with our imaginations set on evil, but they become so. And this is because we're like Eve and we're deceived, or we're like Adam and we're rebellious, and we give in to uh, temptation. Now, the problem, however, arises well after the teachings of Christ and the apostles. And even after the first century of Christian uh, followers, because in the first century, you have the Didache, which is a, uh, about 90 A.D. Uh, was when we, we think it was written, but it's a manuscript from uh, uh, Jewish Christians, I believe in the city of Jerusalem. No, it wouldn't be Jerusalem. Um, uh, it was, anyway, scratch that. It was, it, was, it was around 90 A.D., I believe is when they, they, they uh, dated it, but it was, uh, it was Jewish Christians. And um, they were—they start off and they're saying there are two ways that men can go. You've got the, the road that leads to life and the road that leads to death. So choose life. And again, you're seeing how we can manifest our appetites and desires in obedience and submission or in rebellion. So this whole theme is carried on from Genesis to Revelation uh, and then well after the ministry of Christ. But then we get into... Um, Around around the time of Augustine of Hippo, you start to see how uh, this external attack on Christianity uh, by the Gnostics has just been on, ongoing and ongoing and ongoing. False texts are coming in where they're writing the Gnostic gospel of this and the Gnostic gospel of that. And 1 John uh, 4 is what warns us because it says um, um, anyone who denies the incarnation of Christ the God in flesh uh, is the spirit of Antichrist and that whole book is written to address the Gnostics and in like Acts 20 28 it says uh, after his departure fierce wolves will arise from among the Christians and so false doctrines and so this didn't catch God off guard like he knew it was coming but by the time we get to Augustine of Hippo he was uh, raised by a Christian mother uh, a pagan father pagan in the Roman sense, not like what a lot of Westerners think, but it was like the religion of Rome. And uh, his, his father allowed him to be raised as a Christian, but it was in this dualistic environment where his dad was promoting paganism and his mom is promoting Christianity. And uh, he eventually goes off to pagan school, which again is teaching like this Romanized um, religious political system. And then after this, he goes off to uh, study um rhetoric and philosophy and he's he's spent a lot of time like sowing his wild oats as it was he's very (laughs) fleshly he's chasing the women like Augustine loved the ladies uh you know instead of LL Cool J (laughs) might be uh you know something similar to that with Augustine (laughs) the ladies loved Augustine um and uh but he goes off and he's studying like um Cicero and he's stimulating his mind with with Greek philosophy and Platonist concepts about divine simplicity and God being outside of time. So he's got this whole construct. And then from there, he goes into uh, this, this cult known as Manichaeism. So it was like you see him sowing his flesh, then you see him sowing to his mind with, with philosophy, and then he still felt like something was missing. So he joined the Manichaeans to get this spiritual quenched this desire that he had now manichaeanism uh manny or Maines, the, the prophet was a um a man who was running around telling everybody that he was the paraclete the holy spirit that jesus promised to send that this was manes oh boy and, uh, yeah so he's got some real bad ideas now manny didn't invent this religion he actually got it from his parents okay. his mom and dad were members of a cult i, I can't remember the name of it but essentially, the cult would say that a 90-foot Jesus appeared next to a 90-foot Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was Jesus's sister, and they give them this book that says if you get baptized, not only will your past, present, and future sins be forgiven, but like your syphilis, you know, or your leprosy, um, your you know, our 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 poor eyesight would um would be corrected, and so they run around and they're like preaching the baptism of of uh of this this religion and people started flocking to it but that's easy to prove wrong the funny, funny <laughs> thing is my, my leprosy hasn't gone away and, and you know my my gonorrhea sure hasn't cleared up and um you know um uh my sister who had like this fatalistic disease was baptized and died and so that once that that Cult was really kind of, excuse me, that cult was really proved to be false. Nobody nobody believed it anymore. But Manny was raised in it. And so he saw how to like not design a false belief system. So he went around and he said, I'm gonna combine like the best of Zoroastrianism. I'm gonna combine the best of this, the best of that, the best of Christianity, and put them into an amalgam. And so Augustine of Hippo affirmed that for I want to say like,
2: was it eight years, nine years? Uh, was, uh, was, I thought it was like eight, Yeah, almost 10 years, wasn't it? Yeah,
0: he was in there for a while. And uh, so he ends up being an auditor in their religion. And then one day, um, there's there's various um, accounts of this. Sometimes he'll say that he saw a Bible and heard, pick up and read and read it and converted. Uh, but the problem is, is that, you know, it would have had to have been Jerome's Latin translation because he didn't read Greek or Hebrew. Sometimes you'll hear that he went to Jerome at the beckoning of his mother and eventually converted. There's a couple different accounts of that. But at any rate, okay, long story, not quite over, sorry. Um, <laughs> the, 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 so, so Augustine converts to Christianity and he says, you know what? My days of hedonism are behind me. He was engaged at this point to like an 11 year old heiress. He thought he was going to marry into wealth and open a school of rhetoric. Um, uh, but when he converted to Christ, he said, you know, I'm going to send her away. Uh, he sent away his, um, essentially a concubine lover. Uh, he had had like a relationship with her for 15 years and had a son, but he said, I'm swearing off the ladies, you know, like, uh, you go through this sort of catharsis when you come to Christ and you're like, you know, I'm throwing out all my old rock and roll albums, you know, that's kind of <laughs> how, gonna... so he's like, I'm getting rid of my you know, my this and that and this, and I'm, I'm rejecting Platonism. I'm rejecting, um, Manichaeism and I'm just going to be a Christian. And it went pretty well until those sexual urges started coming, you know, like 15 minutes later. <laughs> and uh, these, It's like, why did I send them? her away so fast? <laughs> <laughs> this, this vow of celibacy, uh, it's not all it's cracked up to be like, um, and so, he ends up spending a considerable amount of time just struggling with this, but still rejecting his past beliefs. And he put out a tremendous volume of work during this time. He's very honest and open about like his struggles and where he came from. And he's writing against the Gnostics. He's writing against the Manichaeans. He's, you know, so he's very pro-Orthodoxy as best he can be. Because again, he doesn't speak or read Greek or Hebrew All he has to go off of is Jerome's translation of the Latin, which is somewhat problematic because when you get into the Latin, this is where we get back to original sin. Like I said, long story. The Latin doesn't make a distinction between the yetzer uh, hara or the yetzer hato. It doesn't make a distinction between the epithumia of good and the epithumia of bad. In Latin, there's just concupiscence. And it only has a negative meaning. There's no such thing as like a good and godly lust. It's not like concupiscence is a base uh, animalistic sexual desire. So when Augustine is reading this Latin translation, he sees this, um, this translation of, of Romans and he reads in Adam. We were all in Adam. And it's a, it's a problem with the translation, but it's also a problem with Augustine's eisegesis. And so he starts to say, wait a minute, that reminds me of the teachings of Manny. Like Uh I've been refuting these guys for a while, but maybe the reason, right, I burn with lust, maybe that's not a good and godly desire, so that I would get married and be fruitful and multiply and obey the command of God. Maybe that's this sin that I inherited from Adam. It's Adam's fault that I struggle with lust and self-control. And so what, what Augustine starts to do is slowly retreat back from Christian orthodoxy. He doesn't run from it. It's a slow, it's a slow, uh, uh, retreat, but he starts incorporating some ideas from Manichaeism and he's been a Neoplatonist pretty much his whole life and it just gets a little bit stronger. Um, and he started to put out some literature and works and, and writing on this and a, um, uh, an Orthodox, um, monk, uh, by the name, I don't think he was even a monk at that time, but by the name of Pelagius, confronts him and was like, "Hey, man, you're getting awfully cozy with those Manichaeans, and um, you're, you're you wrote how you disagree with the apostles. Like, this is not a this is not a small deal. Like, you're you're headed you're headed. You know, everybody will say like, you're headed. You keep this up, in 15 years, you're not going to be a Christian. I, I've heard that." gonna so well, you
1: listen to rock and roll and wearing skinny jeans.
0: You're wearing skinny jeans, man. Next thing you know, you're going to be dancing. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but uh, so so what happens is, is, Augustine gets this rebuke from Pelagius, and he just he's a, he's a man of pride. He's a man of rhetoric. He's brilliant. And so instead of just taking the correction and going, you know, okay, let me look into this, maybe instead he goes further into it. He it cements this. Idea, and now he feels he has to defend and articulate and formulate. And so he begins to formulate what would become original sin. Like Adam was the original sinner, but when we talk about original sin, we're talking about this doctrinal concept known as original sin. And so original sin asserts that because we were all literally in the loins of Adam, so we were genetic material in his reproductive region, and more than likely a lot of people lean this way not everybody so there's a disclaimer there our souls are inherited from Adam we're just extensions of him so therein we don't have a sin nature that we've developed but we inherited his sin nature because like we inherited you know his genetic material or his soul and so we are now born stained with concupiscence so they view it as a stain rather than like a godly ambition or drive we can abuse So we're stained with this thing and that um, we are rightly condemned to hell as a result. And we have this base appetite for just anything contrary to God. And so as a result of this, this is why you had the doctrine of infant damnation come about. Like Fulgentius, who a lot of people thought was Augustine, Fulgentius would write and say, hey, because of this thing called original sin, Babies that die in the womb go straight to hell because they were never baptized to wash away original sin. So you start to see this evolution of original sin, and it starts to create problems. So they start creating reactionary doctrine. So you had infant baptism to wash away the sins of the inheritedness of of Adam. And you got to get that baby in the water quick because if it dies and the infant mortality rate back then was ridiculous. So what better recruiting method for your particular group than to say, you got to get them in, get them in fast. And you got to like, and and so basically he was using the fear. And I don't know if this was intentional, but this was certainly the the result, the fear of, of your child going to hell as a means of pushing this doctrine and a recruitment tool. And so then you start entering into issues with the incarnation, right? Because Christ is, the promised descendant of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. He's the descendant of David, Abraham. He is a child of Mary. Hebrews tells us he came in our flesh and blood, like us in every respect. Well, wait a minute. We've got a problem because if we're all born stained with concupiscence and guilty, he's not our spotless redeemer. So then they said, well, wait a minute. What if, just an idea here, gentlemen, what if in a singular act of grace and privilege, God spared Mary the stain of original sin. Then he couldn't contract it from her. And they're like, great, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> Fanfic
2: Bible, baby.
0: <laughs> but here's the problem. Nobody stopped to say, if God could spare Mary the stain of original sin, then what was the point of the incarnation at all? Bingo. Because what they were saying was the, in, the immaculate conception of Mary was a greater grace and a greater act of God's mercy than the Incarnation itself. And so now you start to see how Rome starts going down this path of of the Marian dogmas, and it's all in response to Augustine's original sin. (laughs) Um, And so there's a lot here that you can lay at his doorstep. Uh, Some of it, you know, we can say he didn't know was going to happen. Some of it, I think he certainly did. Um, But at any rate, original sin is this idea that we've inherited Adam's sinful nature, guilt, and are damned to hell the moment we come into existence unless we're baptized, and even then, Augustine would say, baptism doesn't guarantee that that child will actually go to heaven, because God God may look and say, I choose not to elect that baptized baby, but there's a better chance if he was baptized, right? So you better get him in even then. Yeah. And then we get into the Reformation, and you have John Calvin, who's or you get Martin Luther, who's an Augustinian monk. John Calvin, who's a big admirer of Augustine, and you start to see this formulation of original sin. Now we're spiritually dead. Now we, we we lack the capacity to even rightly understand spiritual truth. And so it elevates and ramps up this idea of the Gnostics. But what they've done is they've, and I'm not saying Catholics or, or Reformed are Gnostics, but they've taken Gnostic concepts and merged them with Christianity to where now you have something that is not orthodoxy and it's based in part on Gnostic views. And like I said, it, it corrupts the incarnation. There's a million, million and one negative consequences for this. But if you've been raised in the West, then you come out of either uh, Roman Catholicism reformed theology or a culture that's been influenced by these. So you automatically are taught original sin. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I hear pastors saying, well, you think babies don't have sin and you've never had children, you know, it's like it's it's an indoctrination. It's a slow, methodical thing. And so when you come to the faith, you assume this is an essential teaching. But you've got groups like the Eastern Orthodox. You've got the, the um, I believe it's the uh, the old Catholic Church. You still have uh, like various Anabaptist groups, non-denominational groups that I've never or have come to. I mean, like Eastern, Eastern Orthodox have never accepted it. Other groups have kind of realized, "Hey, wait a minute, let's go back to pre-Augustinian orthodoxy," but it is still a minority view in the West, and it's attacked. And they say, "If you deny original sin, then you are denying why Jesus had to come." But they don't realize they're denying he came according to Scripture if they're affirming it. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah. it's really problematic.
2: Yeah. Well, that's actually what got me. I used original sin recently when I was talking about it. So my wife and I, we uh, we had some serious fertility problems for a while. We had, we don't, she couldn't get pregnant and it seemed like we just couldn't have kids. And we had two miscarriages and we're like, what? She can't get pregnant. Now we have our miracle that's upstairs. Currently. I just heard her crying a few minutes ago. <laughs> uh, Eliana, it means God has answered. And we had this little girl and it was, she was such a miracle. And I'm looking at her. And when I, as I was thinking of original sin, I'm like, you are telling me that we're all born filthy, horrible, wretched sinners, rebellious against God. And all she knows right now is that she's hungry, sleepy, or wants to sit up and look at the room. There's, She just has basic innate desires to want to do things, but she has no sinfulness. Uh, you can't tell me that she, you're looking at her and going, oh, yeah, she's an evil, wicked sinner and deserves hell. She hasn't even had a chance to. So that's what's funny, though, because I've noticed a lot of people who are Calvinists and do believe in total depravity, a lot of them have shifted position on this a little bit. They're like, well... God shows grace to them. And it's like, or they, well, say they don't know. What what? Or they say they don't even know. Yeah, or, yeah, well, you know, we I guess we and it's like, well, you're creating a problem that you don't need to create. And what's funny is about what, what you were talking about uh with um oh my word, what's the word? Uh, I Hurrah, but before it. Oh, the Yeser. Yeser, yes, thank you. I keep <laughs> Yeah, the Yeser Hurrah. That's a Jewish concept. That's been around a long time. Um, yeah. I, was, I can't believe I forgot the word, but yeah, the yetzer hurrah, and the, the whole idea of the yetzer, the desire, has been around, and that's, that's the Jew, that was always been the Jewish thought, thought, but the duality of man's desires, because we have the knowledge of good and evil, so now that you have the knowledge of it, now you can have the desire for either. And then, as Genesis says, by the time they are young people, young men, so maybe teenagers, whatever, uh, their heart is set on evil because it's a slow fade. Um, Mm -hmm. But anyway, I just found that to be highly interesting. People have no idea how much Augustine really did impact the early church and how much of our doctrines actually were not part of the original orthodoxy. There are still things, I'm sure, in my own thinking that I still have to unravel from... Uh, Pre-Augustine, right? Like, so um, that's that's really interesting it, stuff. It shows you the impact, right? Because, and this
1: is my favorite question to ask Calvinists, um, because I think it kind of gets to the heart of some of the issues. Is why are we told to avoid false teachers? And I think this shows it so well. Is that it can be very pervasive. I mean, essentially Augustine became a watershed moment in the entire, almost the entire universal Christian church and with with a couple exceptions. And I, I even just watching your videos, I'm like, it was a little bit kind of disconcerting for me because I'm like, boy, how much of this do I still hold on to? And I can't even like get my mindset out of the idea of original sin just because it has been so pervasive in what I grew up with. So at, I don't know, I just look at that and go, okay, Look at, look at the impact one guy had, who clearly was strawmanning this monk, <laughs> right, who was going back to some teachings that were not biblical at all. And now you get to the point where people will argue that his beliefs were original orthodoxy. Like, they can't even accept that that
0: was a change in the Church. <laughs> yeah, yep. Well, I mean, I was, I was talking with a Calvinist brother uh, about a week ago, and he was telling me, he said, no, uh, original sin— is an orthodox pre Augustinian view. And I said, Well, um, do you have any sources or anything I can look at? Because my studies, I've, I've read the, you know, I haven't read everything in the ECF, so that's a big volume of work, but I've read a lot of it. And uh, I said, What I found is uh, just how we can eisege and read original sin into the Bible. There's various passages that people will proof text, which I love those because if you actually stop and look at them, they actually refute the view. Um, <laughs> But you can do that to the, the uh, early church fathers as well. You can read them talking about sin and go, oh, he must mean an inherited sinful nature and guilt. No, he said sin. But over here he said death. That must mean spiritual death at conception. No, he means you die. Like, <laughs> like why are you adding all this baggage to it? Well, it's yeah. because we've been taught to do that. Well, I asked this brother and he, he quoted Pelican, um, who's a, uh, a very well-respected uh, historian. And he had quoted Cyprian. And Cyprian is here talking about, you want to baptize infants? Like, okay. I mean, I don't see any problem with that. That's essentially, like, that's the Warren McGrew condensed version. And it says that because Augustine saw this, that's how he built on infant baptism to wash away original sin. So he took this idea that it was okay to baptize children and said, it's not only is it okay, this is why we do it. And so this Calvinist brother was like, see, right here, he's saying Cyprian taught it. And I was like, he said it was okay to baptize children. And that Augustine took that and ran with it and invented something entirely different. And he's like, no, no, read it right here. I said, brother, I am reading what you've given me. And that is exactly what it's stating. But we end up with these presuppositional lenses on that we can bring to the text. And the danger is we don't know that we're doing it. Like the blind man does to know he's what he's blind to, right? You, you don't. You need somebody to come alongside you, help you, show you. And when I came out of Calvinism, I didn't trust anybody. I only trusted the Bible and God, which put me in a very peculiar place. Now, my detractors will say, "Oh, Warren's being a biblicist. It's just him and the Bible making it up as he goes." But no, what I was doing was I was reading my Bible, and like I said, I would hear every view on a particular topic and i would go back to the bible and go what is it really saying have i been reading that into it incorrectly what is the early church saying i spent a considerable amount of time studying the early church writings um but it it impacted every aspect of christianity and we don't realize the significance of it and when i did um you know you 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 hear this term with calvinists called cage (laughs) <laughs> Without they just get so mad and vitriolic, and they're like, even though God decreed who's going to be a, 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 able to repent and not, and He's got to elect you and regenerate you and give you faith, you need to repent and, and believe right now. And it's like you're not being very consistent. But I kind of went through that on the other end, where I was like running around the streets like Charlton Heston and Soylent Green, and I'm yelling, "It's people! It's people!" And I was like, "It's." It, it, it's not biblical. Original sin isn't biblical. It denies the incarnation. Like, and people were like, you're insane. <laughs> and I, I stopped and I went, you know what? I am. I, I'm not being wise. I'm not tempering my zeal with wisdom. And I'm just, I'm, I'm running through the building yelling fire because it's on fire. But I'm so excited people aren't understanding what I'm saying. So I've had to kind of temper things a little bit. Um, but it's, as you can tell, it's still a passion topic of mine.
2: Well, yeah, no, yeah. So this year I decided to read all five volumes of Against Heresies by, uh, Ar- Arrhenius is I've heard so many different pronunciations of his name, but I'm going to go with Iranius for now. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I read that and it was funny cause they're even in his writings, uh, and of course against heresies is all against Gnosticism. I mean, it's just him lighting them up with both barrels for a very long period of time. It's not an easy read either. Um, But it was also funny because one of the things that people don't realize, uh, because obviously Calvinism uh, and Augustine uh, deny free will. You know, it's all been decreed and commanded by God. So therefore, don't worry about it. God's got it all taken care of. But the problem is with that is the fact that the earlier church actually did defend free will and pushed against the Gnostics who taught against free will. And what's so funny is that obviously Augustine, who came from that background, ended up applying that m- mindset of God to Christianity. And uh, recently even a, a friend of mine, uh, we got into a little bit of a debate. He's like, no, it's not true because he's Calvinist. He's like, it's not true. The early church most definitely left a link. He's like, well, the church most definitely... Uh did not, did, uh, did, oh no, they most definitely denied free will. They, right. they, you know, they did not hold the free will. I'm like, okay, let me show you, like, three paragraphs of Arrhenius himself in against heresy, defending free will. And you tell me when free will means anything else besides "I could have done otherwise." Uh, you know that's, yeah. and so anyway, that's one of the many things. And people do not realize that original sin affects everything. If if original sin is true, yeah. then you have to be consistent with it. It, it if that's the case, babies deserve hell. Um, you can't get that nice comforting feeling when you go to a baby's funeral uh, and I've been to a baby's funeral and it's horrible. It's, yeah. th- it's horrific. Um, my youth pastor's son died at six months and it's like, then if original said it is true, you can't sit there for the sake of your fee fees say, Oh no, uh, God just shows grace there when there's no verse that says that he does. So then you're saying that th- that child deserves hell. So it, it, it makes no sense. And even. I was going to say, even Rome has had
0: to backtrack on this because um, our current, the current Pope, I shouldn't say our current, but the current Pope, um, he was actually on the, uh, the council that did the research on this. And they put out a document where they had to sit back and it was uh, the hope of salvation for infants and young children. Something to that effect is the, is the title. And they concluded that their view of, of salvation was too restrictive. And so, you know, Rome is very careful in the way they word anything. <laughs> but basically they're like, we don't want to say original sin is wrong. And we don't want to say infant limbo is wrong. Because that's another result of original sin. But they're like, but we're not going to be teaching infant limbo. And even though we still pay lip service to original sin, we believe all the children go to be with the Lord. And so they've even had to walk it back because they're seeing after 1500 years, whatever it is, that they're having problems. But what's interesting is people will say, how did that flip occur, right? So in the early church, if we're all believing uh, free will, man is, is created innocent and upright, but develops a character by doing good or evil, when did that flip occur? It occurred with Augustine. So when this conflict occurred between him and the monk Pelagius, Augustine didn't respond and say, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go to my, my prayer closet uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna spend the next six months studying my Bible, fasting, and reading my Bible, and really taking this before the Lord. Instead, what he did was he said, I'm gonna format a uh, uh, format an argument using my past as a, an expert in rhetoric, and he attacked the monk Pelagius and he developed 14 points to slander him. Like one of the points was Pelagius believes that the wealthy aren't really saved because they haven't given away their money and power. Well, all of a sudden the wealthy and the powerful are like, Pelagius said that? He's a horrible person. <laughs> we get behind Augustine. And Augustine's like, oh, this is great. You're gonna see how this comes to play in a minute. But then he comes in and like he starts listing 14 points. Um and just just horrendous stuff. And you can actually look at August or you can look at Pelagius' writings and they completely refute it. Like what he was writing before these accusations refuted, and if we if we are being as critical of him as we could, he affirmed half of one fourteenth. So <laughs> Pelagius was one twenty eight guilty of the claims Augustine levied against him.
1: Of Pelagianism.
0: A, a Pelagian. yeah, Pelagius was 128th Pelagian, and uh, and so what Augustine did was he started throwing a temper tantrum. And saying this is a heretic and a liar. And what he did was he combined little bits of heresy from this group and a little bit of heresy from that group, invented some new heresies, bundled them all together, and called them his teachings, Pelagius' teachings. So Pelagius gets brought in before um, the council at Diaspolis. They interview him. They're hearing the, the charges. They're saying, What do you believe about this? What do you think about that? And when it's over, they declare him orthodox, right? Because they affirmed free will. They affirm man's innocence and they're like, Augustine. we don't understand your issue because he doesn't affirm any of these 14 because nowhere in the 14 did it say he, he affirms free will. If, if, if Augustine had laid that challenge out, he would have been laughed out of there because that was the, the, the view of the church.
1: That is ironic. So what
0: Augustine <laughs> had to do was kind of, he had to take this little fatalistic pill and wrap it in an M&M, you know, and then that way when you're eating it, you don't taste the, the poison. But Dias rejected him and said, no, Pelagius is orthodox. And so then he complained and had him brought in a second time. The same thing (laughs) happened. no, he's orthodox. What are you talking about? Like he doesn't believe these 14 points. Why do you, what do you, what are you? So Augustine uh, has his own little condemnation party and he writes a letter to Pope Innocent and says, look at what this guy's teaching. So Innocent, Uh, Anathematizes or or excommunicates based on the claims of Augustine. No trial, nothing. And uh, Dr. Ali Bonner, who I mentioned we interviewed, uh, she's the foremost expert on this sort of stuff, and she said that um, her research led her to conclude that it wasn't even a permanent um, excommunication. It was a temporary one until Innocent could get the facts and investigate it. But he died. And so a year later, Pope Zosimus comes on the scene. Pope Zosimus starts investigating it. He's getting these letters from uh, Pelagius, basically saying, this is what I believe, this is what happened. Zosimus comes in, investigates it. He calls Augustine and his men wicked liars and declares Pelagius orthodox. Case closed. Augustinianism is heresy. Pelagianism is orthodoxy. It's been affirmed every time it's ever been questioned. Now you've got a pope who's actually investigated it. He's declared the same thing. But then Emperor Honorius, who is defending Rome against the barbarian hordes of the Germanic people, hears about the schism between the bishops in North Africa, which is Augustine, and the rest of Western Rome, which is uh, largely Orthodoxy. And he comes in, and he, we don't have any writings of this. This is all inferred. I have to be very careful in the way I say this but I believe the evidence is strongly in favor of this understanding, basically says, you, you're, not, you're, not, you're not ripping my empire in two here, uh, uh, Zosimus. I'm not going to have you know, Augustine and, and orthodoxy fighting. It's better that one man, because uh, Honorius didn't view Pelagius as representative of orthodoxy. He just viewed him as a man. So he's like, it's better that, that Pelagius be condemned and we can move on. So because of this decree from Emperor Honorius, Zosimus does a 180. After retracting an excommunication and rebuke and calling Augustine and his men wicked liars, he's now saying, oh no, you know what, uh, yeah, we're going to condemn him. <laughs> and So it wasn't that the church condemned Pelagius and defended Augustine, it was that the emperor got involved. And now unless you want to say that You know, some secular emperor has power over doctrine. You've got a real problem defending this now. But now that it becomes the the state religion, right, of Rome, and the state is saying this is what we believe, and we've ruled on it. Augustine's right, Pelagianism is a heresy. Augustine comes out and he goes, It doesn't even matter if he believed it. Like the main thing is we got it condemned. And so he acknowledges, (laughs) like, he didn't even really care. And now you've got ecumenical councils coming in, and they're building on this foundation. And they're saying, "We, Pelagius was a heretic, right? The only one who called Pelagius a heretic for denying original sin was not any of the groups, that the church assemblies. It wasn't even any of the popes. It was the emperor. The, the charges against Pelagius were these 14 points that Augustine prepared that he had been exonerated from every one of them. So you can see how this is the thing that detoured the church into where it is now. Um, But it's a fascinating topic, and there's a lot more to it. But I don't want to bore you or your, your audience any more than I already have. I'm sorry.
2: No, I actually love the fact that you went to early church history. I think that's vital that we end up actually doing that because people don't realize. They just hear terms like they hear about Augustine, the author of The City of God. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, Augustine, the great... And people don't realize it's like, no, one of the things that he did, and people don't understand that Augustine did this, he literally would quote, quote unquote, Pelagius, but change the quote depending on what he was writing about, just to misrepresent Pelagius further. Um, and so that's what's funny is that, uh, oh, the, what's her name? The doctor you had on? Oh, Dr. Bonner. Bonner. That's it. Bonner. Yeah. We got Dr. Bonner on. She, uh, she even said, she's like, yeah, uh, Pelagianism, she basically said, doesn't actually exist. It's it's a puppet. It's a strawman. What? The strawman. Yeah, it's a total straw man fabricated. So that's what's funny is that a lot of times I'll be, of course, if you defend free will or you go against Calvinism, a lot of Calvinists will call you a Pelagian. But what's funny is that a lot of them haven't even read anything Pelagius has actually said. So it's like, do you even know what Pelagie, uh, what Pelagius believed? And that was one of the things I started when I heard. I was like, Pelagian. Was the First time I got called, called a Pelagian, I was like, what is? I don't even know what that is. So I guess sure, I, I, whatever. I don't know what that is. Does the believe in free will make you a Pelagian? Sure. Um, then I looked, researched Pelagianism. Then I, it was that giant deep hole that you just kind of uh, graciously where it was able to summarize well. And I was like, this isn't what this says at all. That's not what Pelagius says. Remotely, we do have some of his surviving documents. Not a not a ton because again, he was a. Well, what's 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 interesting? I hate to cut you oh, off. What's
0: good. interesting about his surviving documents? Is the reason we have so many surviving documents from a "quote-unquote" heretic that was condemned by the emperor um, and, and several councils later? The reason that we have his writings is that they were uh, they traveled as the work of Jerome. So the early church was like, "Oh, we've got this document from Jerome," <laughs> and then then they were like, "We also we got this other document." That's from the Council of Nicaea. And so the early church knew his, his, his writings were Orthodox, and they associated them with foundational Orthodoxy. And it wasn't up until the Middle Ages that this started to get questioned, and it wasn't even until the 20th century that those were discovered. So wow. for, for most of, most of Christianity since Augustine, his of uh, Plagius's writings were viewed as foundational Christian documents, but he has been attacked as a heretic, and uh, it, it's really it's tragic. I, I think when we stand before the Lord in heaven, he's going to be sitting there just giving you one of those "I told you so" looks, you know, <laughs> just arms crossed, and he's like, "All right, you all can line up here and tell me you're sorry. I'm going to show you some Christ-like <laughs> love and forgiveness." But I want a long line, you Augustinians. Let's get it going. And I, I think the Lord and His good grace is going to make every one of us who's ever said anything bad about that man walk up and apologize because we—he really has it coming.
1: Well, I think it's really funny. Like, if you give it like a modern example, I think if like if we went fifteen hundred years in the future, and all we had for our understanding of Hillary Clinton was what Donald Trump said about her. It would be drastically mischaracterized, or vice versa, depending on which side. Say all we have about Donald Trump is what Hillary Clinton said about him. It's like, of course that would be very skewed. And the fact that Augustine was was strawmanning him just to just to try to get him out of the church and get him out of his way because he was giving him all this crap about his manichaeism. It's like, oh boy, this is <laughs> this is quicksand we're standing on right now. And I don't know. It's the original fake news, I guess. <laughs> the,
2: the OG fake news. Yeah, but that's the thing. It's like, and so just so we're clear on the program, uh, I feel like has, if this is the first time a lot of our listeners have heard a lot of this stuff, I don't want to make it—obviously, we don't deny like things like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory yeah. of God. Just because you deny original sin does not mean suddenly you think that people aren't don't sin. Okay, so I just want to make sure we make that clear. It's the fact that mankind is born innocent. Babies are innocent, and then over time, our desire becomes set on evil, as Genesis specifically, specifically says. Um, so,
0: yeah, and so we're not we're not denying that man has sin, uh, that man sins, that he needs a redeemer, that he needs a savior. But what's interesting is as many denominations have started appealing to like an age of accountability. So what you, what you get is inconsistency. So they're yeah. like, you're born guilty, but God doesn't hold you accountable because he's a respecter of your age. And that's not really in keeping with scripture. If you're guilty, you're guilty. He's not a respecter of persons. But, but they instinctively know in their hearts, because they reflect the good work of God, that babies are innocent. So how do they get around this idea that these innocent babies who never sinned deserve hell? They go, well, it's an age of accountability. You're only guilty when you know you're guilty. Well, wait a minute. Now, if total depravity is true, and you're created unable to understand spiritual truth, then your inherited guilt is a spiritual truth you can never understand. So according to that, you would never be guilty. So it gets into all sorts of rabbit holes, like where you're you're just just going down one trail after another. But what you'll find is, is a lot of people will get so upset, and they'll say, how dare you declare that baby is innocent? We know he's he's guilty and deserves hell, but he's not going to go there until he's responsible and knows it. It's like, wait a minute, Genesis says he's innocent, becomes guilty and knows it. Like, why are you complicating it with this Augustinian paradigm? Just let that go and embrace what the Scripture says. But but we've been taught to do it. So to be fair, it is very difficult to consider this if you've never been presented and never considered it before. Like Psalm fifty one five. This is going to come up in the comments. David was conceived and guilty from the moment he was and it came into existence. He was a sinner. It's not what Psalm 51 5 says, guys. I'm sorry. The Hebrew, uh, in, in essentially, the Hebrew says, look and see. My mother conceived me in sinful passion like an animal in heat. That, that term in Hebrew is yacham. That's used to describe animals mating. So our, our poet king is using vulgar language to describe his mother's um, Uh, conception of him. It's never used anywhere else in scripture to describe humans. And he says that he was given, uh, he came, he was born through pain and shame. And that is a consequence that God did give us in Genesis three, which is painful childbirth. And he's drawing a parallel between his own adultery with Bathsheba, where his innocent son was said to be dying. And he is showing how his innocent son, who he said, I'm going to go be with him because God just said he forgave David. Again, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm very passionate about this, and I know that this is coming. Needless to say, if you want to see some proof text, and you're like, "I don't understand what you're saying, Warren," and I know you you won't if this is your first time hearing me because I'm not being clear tonight. I apologize. Go to Idle Killer. Search for Understanding Psalm 51. If you're if you're concerned about like Ephesians 2, by nature, children of wrath. That's a nature developed by following the devil into disobedience. Again, he who practices righteousness is righteous. He who practices sin is of the devil. We develop that nature. But I've got resources to this on Idol Killer, and uh, I'm going to be doing more proof text examination in our ongoing original sin series.
2: Which is really good. Um, you should check I'm out not, that series if you have. Definitely.
0: I'm not anywhere near as scatterbrained uh, in that series as I am tonight because I'm able to sit down and put my thoughts in. In order and, and really have a nice clean presentation, I hope. So I apologize. Tonight's just a passion pouring out of me and I, I'm long winded.
2: But yeah, check it out. Honestly, I don't think it's that bad. Yeah, I think it's really good. I'm like, man, he's summarizing this so well. Uh, so I think it's great, especially from memory. I'm over here like, oh, wow, well done. So um, uh, I was going to say, well, one of the things we've been we're
1: planning on talking about in our next video, but I think it's kind of interesting to bring up here, is this idea of total depravity and original sin. Um, has potentially been the the basis for some people shipwrecking their faith when they see an atheist who is showing goodness. They're showing love. They're showing compassion. They're doing something good. And they're going, well, I was told that we don't do anything righteous without the power of God. And this person that is denying God altogether is somehow still showing compassion to the homeless or, or doing other loving things. And it's, it's, it's hard for them to explain and I think that's one of the problems with original sin if we really kind of boil it down is is it you you have a false perception of the world and you don't know how to handle when you see an unbeliever doing still something morally good
2: exactly so that's one of the things I, I, I hit a lot of my Calvinist friends with too like if our hearts are always rebellious against God and we're all sinful no matter what then why is it that we see unbelievers do good and you know, well, God gives them even grace too. I'm like, okay, that's that, you, that's a red herring, man. Like that is such a you know, and a lot of people don't realize that they're doing that. Um, but it you know, it doesn't quite work. But I I could talk about original sin all night. So, is there something really quick you want to add to original sin? Because I'd love to talk about penal substitution. was no, no, just
0: I was gonna I was gonna touch on that 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 broader topic that that when we've been indoctrinated into a specific way of thinking, right? I think every Christian watching. And hopefully every Christian in the world is in agreement that Christ is the sure foundation and that Scripture is uh, reliable and the source for truth and instruction into uh, who he is and what he wants us to know about him. Right. But how we approach that, we take a lot of presuppositions to that. And it's really easy. Right. You, you, You probably have heard the joke that Jesus drove a Honda because he and his disciples were all in one accord. Well, if, 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 if you're, if you, that's just a really hyper uh, example of eisegesis, but we can actually go to the text and we can, instead of reading, oh, he owned a Honda because it says accord, but we can read sin and think sinful nature and guilt. We can read death and think imputed spiritual death at conception. So we can actually start committing eisegesis and reading it into it, not knowing, but here's where it gets dangerous. What happens when you start to see Scripture doesn't teach that over here? And you start to see that now Scripture and your precepts are in opposition, but you haven't been trained to think critically, right? And so now you're going, Scripture is contradictory. Yep. So the Bible isn't true. Christianity isn't true. I'm walking away from the faith. But what you don't realize is you just real, you just encountered where your presuppositions are were exposed as false by the word of God, but you couldn't distinguish them apart from one another. And so these doctrines are dangerous to those in the church and to the unbeliever because it creates impediments and stumbling blocks.
1: That's a great way to put that.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, that's actually yeah great. Because uh, there's uh, so many times I, uh, I've looked at scripture and realized the fact that I carry definitions with some of those phrases that that's not what's being spoken to. Um, so Or what it historically meant, right? Uh, even baptism, there's history there that a lot of people don't know about. I have a, a video on that. But anyway, the other thing, so with a lot of this, so like, you know, total depravity, original sin. Obviously, if original sin is true, we're heart, our hearts are rebellious against God, that means no matter what, He's got to show pour out His wrath, meaning babies go to hell, right? If we're totally depraved. That means we cannot respond to God. He has to Im- impute righteousness forcibly, people wouldn't like me using that word, but that's what it is, forcibly upon you in order for you to make a decision to get out of your total depraved state, which means that what follows, so that's what's funny, all these are, all these are. it's a house of cards. You Once one moves, all of them have to move, and people don't realize when they're inconsistent. So the other thing is, this goes right to penal substitution. And for people who don't, don't yeah. know what that means, it means that when Jesus died on the cross, he died and took our punishment entirely and God poured out his wrath on the son instead of on us. So when people don't, when I said penal substitution to you once, you were like, what is that? I was like, well, dad never heard it. (laughs) So, you know, God pouring his wrath out on his son uh, for the guilty. So uh, another thing that I find interesting is that penal substitution is not an orthodox view. It's not no. one that was held, and uh, it's one that holds so that way Calvinism can be true or or those presuppositions can be true. So uh, can you go ahead and kind of just what, – what are the issues with penal substitution? And uh, one of the, my favorite points that you've made, and this is an issue when, before I gave up penal substitution as I was taught, one of the, the things that was a linchpin for me was I realized that it would logically have to uh, be universalism then. Everyone would have to get to heaven if that were true. Because if God poured out all his wrath on the Son, then all his wrath is used up. Therefore, no one gets the wrath of hell. So anyway, we'll go ahead and wax eloquently for us on that one. What are your thoughts on penal substitution?
0: Well, first first, I want to make a major uh, point here that you will have um, Christian apologists like William Lane Craig. He just came out with a book on defending penal substitution as being orthodox you've got uh, brothers out there that are doing tremendous work spreading the gospel and and promoting Christ and confronting you know error like like Mike winger does a great job love their ministries uh, I'm a huge fan of both those guys uh, but they are huge proponents for penal substitution and uh, with respect um, they're wrong now <laughs> I say that I say that quick and snarky just being silly but they but they really are wrong like um uh like I said Mike Winger big fan of his uh, don't any of the Mike Winger fans out there don't bring your hate to my door I'm a i am I love that brother but I did a I did a, a video where I showed how in his series on penal substitution he's defending it right uh he's he's reading Isaiah 53 and he's ignoring the yets and the buts so like if in penal substitution the, the linchpin chapter in scripture that they say promotes penal substitution is Isaiah 53. You know, he was he was uh, bruised for us. He was crushed. It pleased the Father to crush him. Um, all, all of these different types of imagery. We considered him cursed by God, right? And penal substitution says God cursed Jesus and poured his wrath on him. He became a curse for us. But what it does is it shifts the whole context. The curse... Is death, and and that was the curse that Adam brought on us when he separated communion with God, his life. And, and so it's not, it's not as penal substitution teaches it. Like God hates you and He pours His wrath on you, and that's the curse. The curse is death. And in Isaiah 53, you'll see it says, "We thought this," but and then it corrects it. "We thought this," yet and then it corrects it. Isaiah 53 is is the excuse me penal substitution is built on Isaiah 53, removing the yets and buts. Hmm. It, it ignores the corrective statement. So we if you affirm penal substitution, you are ignoring the correction of Isaiah 53, thinking it actually supports you. I love these gentlemen. Another example would be, and I hate to pick on him too much here, but this will be the last time I do it, I promise. Uh, Mike, in his video, uh, quoted a um, an early letter, um, uh, Diagnosis, I believe is... a. Is, uh, is one of his letters, and in the letter, he writes about how Christ uh, paid a ransom, became a ransom. Well, if you know anything about atonement theories, ransom is one of the earliest atonement theories the church held. So here in this letter, we have a letter writing about the atonement theory of the ransom, but because Mike and uh, and, and like William Lane Craig. They ignore the unique idea in penal substitution. They'll say they believe in it, but then they will appeal to ransom, recapitulation, and moral influence, which are the other early church views on the atonement. So they will strip away these unique aspects of penal substitution, meaning that God—here's what penal substitution teaches in its nutshell. And if you don't like this, then reject it. If you don't know what to accept, then start over. That's okay to admit Um, and you don't have to agree with everything that we're saying here tonight, just start over. There's nothing wrong with that. The penal substitution says God cannot forgive. Okay, My Bible tells me he can. My Bible tells me that Christ came because he forgave sinners and wanted to show that he was not only just and forgiving, but he was the justifier of those he forgives. So God does forgive, but penal substitution says he can't. Uh, He has to be paid. The other unique aspect is it says God poured his wrath. You see, who is God? It's him. Poured his wrath on who? Jesus. Drawing a distinction. It breaks the Trinity. And there's a lot that goes into this. But essentially it says that the Father can't forgive, but Jesus can. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Go. You know, I don't condemn you. Sin no more. Jesus can forgive, but the Father can't and that the father had to pour his wrath on Jesus. And there's a lot of issues here, folks. I don't want to spend too much time harping on it. But what happens is if you remove those unique aspects of penal substitution, and you just say that Jesus saved us from death, which is what ransom teaches, or if you say because he died and rose again, conquering the holy grave, or if you affirm recapitulation, which means God took on our flesh and blood, our nature, lived a perfect, sinless life, And Rose, again, redeeming all of humanity, our flesh, will, mind, soul, and body. That's recapitulation. If you believe that God came to teach us that he loves us and that we should love him in response and be an outpouring of love to those around us, that's moral influence. Those are the three early church views on the work of God. He saved us from death. He redeemed every aspect of who we are. um, And he taught us what it is to be loved and to love and why we should love. That's Orthodox Christianity. That is the redemptive work of Christ. However, in 1100 AD, a gentleman by the name of Anselm of Canterbury, or 1099, somewhere in there, uh, he came out and he was a, a, a lawyer, I believe it was. And he had a European medieval feudal law background. And so in this culture, if you are a peasant, and you are born blind and deaf, right? Or deaf and mute. Um, you're working on your feudal lord's land and you're tending his cabbages and potatoes, and you, you, you're just thankful that he lets you live there and work on, on his land. You pay your taxes and he lets you live there. If that feudal lord came up to you and said, um, you know, he, he comes up beside you, you're, you're required by law, by custom, and by right. To pay him the honor he is due. So you are to immediately turn around, acknowledge him, prostrate yourself before him, and confess that you are lowly and he is exalted. If you do not do that, because you're of such a lowly position and he is in such an exalted position, that feudal lord could demand you be put to death for offending his honor. He would demand satisfaction. You, you may hear this in duels where they slap you in the face with a glove and they're like, I demand satisfaction. It means you've robbed me of my honor. Now, if another peasant came up and didn't acknowledge you, it's no big deal. You're equal. If another noble Lord came up and didn't acknowledge another noble Lord, no big deal. You're the same status. But because God is higher than us and we're down here low, when we offend him, we deserve not just death, but eternal torment. And so this is the idea that Anselm introduced because he thought saving us from death, redeeming all of who we are and teaching us that we're loved and to be loved was insufficient, So for the first thousand years of Christianity, Anselm came in and goes, there's a problem here. So he rejected a thousand years of church history to view God like a European feudal lord. This then became one of the the leading views. Uh, You see Rome embracing it to varying degree. Um, But mainly this becomes the, 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 the pet of the Reformation. They start drawing back on this and expounding on it. But penal substitution was not formally articulated until about 1880 or 1870 in the work of Charles Hodge. So a lot of people, like I, when, I, when I was growing up, I thought penal substitution was the view for the redemptive work of, of what God did in Christ. I didn't realize that the Mormons had older books than I, I was following for my atonement. I, Like uh, Joseph's golden plates were a little bit older than my atonement model. Um, And and so I had a real problem with that because I'm thinking this is orthodoxy and it wasn't articulated until 1880 or 1870. And people will say, but he based it, Warren. He based it on Anselm from 1100. Okay. Progressive revelation. We're going to say God saving us from death, redeeming us and teaching us to love was insufficient and we needed to view him like a European noble lord. And this just happened to be the view that came on when the European <laughs> feudal system happened to be prevalent. I, I have a problem with that. Yeah. But so you see this evolution of PSA and it causes lots of problems. But there is a fear among Protestants because this has become the predominant view that if you say you reject it, you're not you're not giving God the glory he needs, right? Even though for the first thousand years, nobody believed this, they're fine. But now that you and I have been given the revelation of Charles Hodge and Anselm, if we reject their revelation, we're in trouble. So what you see is, is guys that don't like the unique aspects of PSA will reject those. And they'll say that PSA is just simple, penal substitution It's just simply that God saved us from death and redeemed us and taught us to love. That's not it at all. So they're appealing to these orthodox views, labeling it as something it's not, and it does a real disservice. And I don't think they do this on purpose. They're, they're genuine in their convictions. I don't think they realize the bias that led them to do this. Again, I love these brothers, um, but and, and William and Craig put out a book where he spent so much research and time, ice eating his sources. It was I was I was I was surprised. Um, but anyway, I, again, I don't want to harp too much on this, but that is the. 10,000 foot view and as few words as I know how to right say. and one
2: of the one of the ways you put this I thought was such a great way and I'm using this from now on whenever I talk about ransom theory because ransom theory is different right we are we are property of Satan essentially he's the prince of power of the air here blah 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 you know God's redemptive work is working so but so a ransom there's a ransom paid and a ransom is different than a penal substitution by just definition alone, if you look up the difference of substituting versus ransoming is different. So one of the great examples you mentioned, and I'm using it ever ever since, is Edmund from C.S. Lewis, uh, *Chronicles of Narnia*. Uh, the line, "The Witch of the Wardrobe," that was such a great example. He, Edmund, because of the deep magic, belonged to the witch. Okay, well, somebody had to pay the ransom, and so therefore Aslan laid down his life for that. And it also, it's funny because it also morally, uh, it inspired all the people around them to, for love and to do better. But then what is it happens? Well, he rises again, he's strong and he's able to defeat the sin, evil and death of the witch. And it was like such a, when you said that, it just like, I was like that, well, how, why haven't I ever used this as an example <laughs> for ransom theory? Everyone knows lying to witch of the words when Everyone gets that amazing Aslan sacrifice. But, guys, that wasn't penal substitution. He wasn't going, all right, I got to, I, Aslan, have to pour out my wrath upon myself because I am so angry at Edmund, he must be paid. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine, Jordan Ferrier, recently. Uh, he's in our apologetics class, he, he's, uh, he's a published author. Actually, actually, he's been, I found him in my theological journal. Sent, uh, sent that to him. I was like, by the way, just so you know, people are quoting you now. Uh, but my buddy, <laughs> he's like, what? What are people saying? I'm like, I, I just dude's quoting you. It's cool. Uh, but my friend Jordan, he uh, was saying that, um, you know, penal substitution is, you make God a pagan God in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's, I am wrathful and therefore I must eat your heart, you know, or anyone, anyone. I'm so vengeful. Someone has to take my vengeance. You know what? I'm going to make my son do it. Who is also me? What? Like, um, so.
0: And you, you mentioned a good point, too, because if God is pouring out his wrath on Christ, who is incarnate in our flesh and blood, like us in every respect, as according to Hebrews 14 through 18, uh, 2 14 through 18 says, then Jesus took on the entire wrath for humanity. So you end up with universalism. But with the Calvinists, they or, you know, really the Calvinists, They'll say, God only poured out the wrath he had for the elect on Christ. And so everybody who wasn't elect in eternity past still has wrath saved up for them at the end of the time. But what's interesting, though, is you'll have a lot of non-Calvinists affirm penal substitution and reject limited atonement. And all of a sudden, (laughs) their entire soteriological view goes topsy-turvy, and they are contradicting themselves left and right. And they don't realize it. And it's because the the machine isn't calibrated perfectly. There's a wrench in the system. And it is this non-Orthodox view that's causing everything to, to go kind of out of balance. But it does result in, in universalism if you're not a Calvinist. And if you are a Calvinist, um, then you're saying that God only poured his wrath on Jesus. And there's still um, uh, issues within the the Trinity for this. So even the Calvinists can't escape that. Um, but, but yeah, it, it, it is a, it is a major theological problem. And it's one in which when you start to articulate it, you, you come off a little bit like a madman, at least I do. <laughs> um, and people are like, why did Jesus have to come? And can I tell you, when I saw the problem with penal substitution, I asked the same question. I saw there was a problem there and I didn't ask myself like, okay Warren you're not a Christian anymore because you don't know why Jesus came I just go well if this is wrong and it seems like it is why did Jesus come and uh, what you find is is, is it, it's the gospel <laughs> is beautiful God still has wrath right he doesn't want to be a judge he doesn't want to to, to condemn and, and 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 punish people um, He wants us to be his children who he disciplines and love that's really the heart of God. Uh, and when we reject him, we are choosing death because we're rejecting life. Um, and we can get into the Odyssey even. Um, but uh, the problem is, you end up so skewing the very nature of God that it becomes problematic. But God always has forgiven the repentant. Isaiah 55:7 is one of my favorite uh, uh, examples of this. Let the wicked forsake his wicked ways, and the unrighteous man his unrighteous thoughts and let them return to me and I will freely or abundantly pardon them. Hmm. What you see is God has a heart for repentance. He, he, want, he, he desires that we return to him. Like the prodigal son uh, that Jesus told us, with the, the father who is desiring his son to return. He is anxiously awaiting. And here's the other thing. it denies total depravity and original sin because God is recognizing we can, which these doctrines say we can't. So God wants to forgive us. He loves us. He said, apart from me, there's death. There's suffering. I will redeem you through those very things to show you how much I love you and understand and relate. But you've got to come while you can because there's time. It's limited and finite. And if you reject me, you're rejecting the only source of life and all good things. And all that's left is my absence. And so when you start to see the orthodox example and teachings of, of God, it becomes a very simplistic, beautiful, machine precision system with, with no contradictions or inconsistencies. And it's just this beautiful message of, I have sinned. I have sinned. I wasn't created a sinner. I'm not a victim. I'm a willful rebel. Now I need to confess that. And I understand what it means to repent now. And God wants to forgive me. This is good news, right? Right. And so you start to understand the, the gospel in a much more profound and intimate way than you did before. But I digress. I, see,
2: and, that's, and that's what sticks out to me, is it becomes so much more beautiful in so many other ways. And it, allows, and it makes so much more sense to why else could God call us to repent, to make better choices than if we are capable of doing so. Exactly. It means that we are born in innocence. And when we are born, we are born innocent, eventually became corrupt through our desires and that God still loved us. And then he paid our ransom for us. There's, it's such a different idea where it's like, no, no, I'm gonna pay the ransom on your behalf. Like if you ever pay someone's like bail, like they needed to get out of bail. Well, that's that's not me jumping in the cage with them and, and then sending them out. Like, all right, I'll take your 20 year sentence. You get to leave prison. No, no, it's let me pay your bail. This, you know, it, I think it's, people need to understand the fact that ransom is different than God pouring out his wrath. And for those who might not have understood the part where it's like, if you, if you deny limited atonement, if you deny limited atonement, but yet you still hold penal substitution, then you're saying God poured out his wrath on Christ, but it's going to pour out more wrath in the end on those. And, and it's contradictory. And it's, so it's like, it doesn't make sense. So again, Ransom theory, um, moral influence, these things actually make a lot of sense. It makes the gospel a beautiful message. So I really appreciate that. And I, have, I
0: have a video on this, but it's one of my very first. And it, it's its not much better than the presentation I've given tonight. It's just a lot more of this. <laughs> so if you, if you actually like what I'm saying and you can tolerate the weirdness in which I regurgitate all this stuff to you, <laughs> uh, this video is only a slight improvement on that, but there's a lot more of it it may be helpful for you. I've had a lot of people share it and they've talked about how it helped them and pointed them in the right direction. Um, But that is on, on Idle Killers YouTube channel. You you can check that out if you're interested.
2: Awesome. Yeah. And then the other thing that I really want, I quickly wanted to touch on because obviously free will theodist. So all this goes into the fact that mankind has a choice and, uh, and this will be, this will be our last chunk to discuss here. Then I'll ask you my closing question. I ask everybody and we can close up. But the thing is, this gets into the problem of evil. You and I discussed this a little bit today just over Messenger. So the thing is, is when we're looking at the problem of evil, you know, the thing that atheists point out the most, okay, if God's an all-loving, benevolent, all-knowing, whatever God, all these things, then why is there evil and suffering in the world? The thing is, is if you hold to, again, let's say uh, original sin, and, there, and total depravity. Well, then your only answer is because God decreed all of it. So uh, we don't know. We chalk it up to mystery, but we do know God makes good of all evil. But he decrees, which is a fancy word to say commanded and approved of, essentially, uh, of the evil. So if you're Reformed, you can only really go with a Reformed theodicy there in response. And I'm just saying, as someone who did endure abuse a lot as a child, hearing the fact that God decreed my abuse... It's, it makes God not only the author of sin, but also kind of... I, I'm i not sure if you're familiar with H.P. Lovecraft, uh, mm-hmm. his writing. But it, I get oh, a yeah. very Lovecraftian feeling of like a God, uh, a great, omni- powerful being who really doesn't give... Yeah, he's anything. the Cthulhu that's
0: coming through the beyond and pouring his, his wrath of untold horrors. Yeah. Exactly.
2: So it's just like, okay, you're all marionettes, and I'm just the master. So it's people don't realize that it creates a problem with the problem of evil like it it magnifies the problem of evil. Um so but the thing is if you understand free will, uh that actually helps us a little bit with the problem of evil. Um because that God is no longer to blame for our horrible horrible choices.
0: Yeah, so with with there's there's um I think the free will aspect of theodicy is a component of the broader answer, but I don't think that it is able to stand on its own
2: agree in with the that. face
0: of a Western approach. So, if if you're taking this, um, we, we can we can still we can still hold on to this Augustinian Western Christian philosophy, not realizing it, and, and at the same time embrace free will. We just don't realize how much it impacted us. But I think the problem is uh, if you're if you're holding on to determinism, then God is your abuser. Uh, he's just using means. And so the person who's standing before you is just the agent through which God is operating to bring about his abuse on you. And so that becomes very problematic. Uh, you'll have an atheist who will ask a, a, a Calvinist. Uh, they'll say, what do I need to do to be saved? And the, the Calvinist will say, nothing. OK, I don't even have to believe. Well, you, you need to believe. And he goes, well, I don't believe. How, how can I believe? Well, you can't. God has to effectually cause you to believe. And so there's 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 this idea out there that is really just kind of anti-gospel. And I think this view of uh, theodicy, the problem of evil, causes so much problems within and without the church. Because, again, everything that comes to pass does so because God decreed it. That's Westminster Confession of Faith, essentially. Well, everything? I mean, everything's a broad category. What about... Not just my speeding ticket, but what about you know uh, the abuse that I endured, or what about the 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 murder or the theft or all of these horrible, unspeakable things that would get us censored on YouTube and kicked off? God decreed all of that. Well, not only did He decree it, but He thought it up, desired it, and wanted it so much He commanded it and then worked to bring it about. Why? Well, they'll say for His glory. Excuse me. Like you're, you're making you're making. God, a devil behind Satan, uh, not the holy and living God who is an authority over him and restraining him. So within within this idea of theodicy, I am studying the problem of of evil at the same time that my dad is in an assisted living facility suffering from um, dementia and vascular, uh, vascular dementia from a stroke. And so he is calling me. He's a he, former Calvinist he came out um, loved love the Lord and he's, he's since gone to be with the Lord. Uh, actually one month from now will be the, the one year since he passed mm-hmm. but, um, but uh, so he, he's dancing now but at the time he calls me and he's struggling to communicate and he's crying I mean just when you my dad is just sobbing and he's like, I trust the Lord Warren I trust the Lord. why is he doing this to me? Why is he doing this to me? Because even though he'd come out of Calvinism, he still had that Calvinistic baggage. And so he thought that the, the God, the living and holy God of scripture, gave him vascular dementia and made him suffer and struggle. And so first I had to say, Dad, you refused to take your blood pressure medicine. You knew better and you had a stroke. Everybody warned you, don't blame God. That was your foolishness. You chose that free will theodicy. It's not fun. And I said it in way more loving and sympathetic terms than that, um, I know that may have come across really blunt, but when I'm talking to him, I'm like, "Dad, remember, you know, you, you were told to take your blood pressure and you didn't, and you said you're ready to be with the Lord, and I told you if you didn't take it, it may have ramifications. The Lord may not want you yet, you know." Um, and he's like, "No, I know, I know. Are you taking your blood pressure?" I said, "Dad, I don't have high blood pressure. Well, get checked out. Get checked out." So free will helped me a little bit there. We sometimes we sow and we reap. Reaping reaping and sowing, sowing and reaping is a natural law that God instilled into the creation. And that was a good law, right? Still is a good law. But when I plant strawberries, what am I going to get? Am I going to get corn? Am I going to get, you know, a coffee cup? Is the world chaotic or am I going to get strawberries? So the law of sowing and reaping is good and godly. But when man rebelled and he sowed rebellion, he sowed separation from God, Then all of a sudden we start to reap these things. And so with a pre-Augustinian theodicy, this is how I approach it. Death is the result of rejecting God who is the source of life. So we tend to look at death and we say, God, I'm dying or someone I love died. And you you hated mankind so much because of what Adam did that you you limited the number of years that we have and you kill us. And then you judge us. I don't think that's a pre augustinian orthodoxy. I think it's a westernized tragedy. What God did in giving us death was to put a finite cap on the time in which we would be able to sin and and sow more pain into our lives and suffering and, and, and store up more wrath. So he said, I'm going to number your days as an act of mercy but not only that, I'm going to come and through that, I'm going to die and redeem you through that very thing that you're scared of to show you that you can trust me. So it was an act, Death is an act of mercy from God and the very vehicle through which he redeems mankind. But then you go, well, wait a minute. What about all of the suffering in the world? Right. Well, if you look at suffering as a curse that God was so angry and wanted to put us under his thumb and make us suffer because you ate an apple out of season. That seems so... But, but R.C. Sproul, Sproul was asked, why did God have such a, a strong reaction to Adam eating an apple out of season? It seems like such a, a ginormous reaction for such a small offense. And R.C. wouldn't address it. He just rebuked him. What's wrong with you? You're dirt. How dare you question God? Well, we're not questioning God. We're questioning your theodicy, sir. You're, we're questioning your theodicy. You are not God. We're questioning you, with respect to Mr. Sproul, who since passed. A lot of people admired that man, and you'll see his clips being played as though he's, you know, in, in the Gospels. But that man was just so mistaken about the God of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Huh. But suffering and pain, these are corrective measures. When when my child. Is is, is is being disciplined. I'll give them a verbal warning. I may put them in timeout, but at some point there's going to be physical pain involved if they don't behave. It's a corrective measure. So we have pain in the world to show us something's wrong, but we also have pain in the world as an act of of, of even further mercy, not just corrective, but go put your hand on a hot stove and get rid of your ability to feel pain how much more damage will be done to you. But because you can feel pain, you can react and limit the damage. And so pain is actually something that God gave us in order to survive a corrupt and fallen world and to tell us something is wrong and we need to return to Him. It's a corrective measure and it protects us. And again, Christ suffered and so He, he, he redeemed mankind through the pain and through the death, the very things that man are fearful of and angry about, God said, don't you get it? Let me show you. And he took that on himself, and he showed how he absolutely relates and how he intended for that. And those are the very vehicles through which we're redeemed. And so with the pre-Augustinian theodicy, we're not viewing pain inherently as all evil, right? We have some pain that results from people making free will decisions, And so we would look at the free will theodicy and we would say this horrible individual is choosing to use their free will to abuse someone else or do something evil. That's on them. If, if I abuse my child, he's not responsible for that, right? I am. My dad wouldn't be responsible if I abused someone I'm responsible. But yet when we talk about God, we say, well, you created someone in your image and likeness and gave them the ability to be self-determinative and they chose to use that ability wrongly. It's your fault. Well, now you're you're really kind of failing to, to put the blame where the blame lies. No court of law in America, secular court, atheistic court, no godless court in the world would sit back and say, I'm going to hold the parent responsible for the sins of their children or their grandchildren. Um, it, we know that the person who commits the offense is, re- is responsible. We know that instinctively. So by looking at the free will theodicy in conjunction with understanding why God gave us pain and why God gave us death as demonstrations of his mercy and love and provision and the means by which he was going to save and redeem us, all of a sudden it becomes a beautiful story and a, and a picture about what, the, what God did and how much he loves us rather than this... Vehicle that um, we're trying to figure out why we're, we're so under God's thumb. So that's 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 again n- just me kind of telling you my two cents. <laughs>
2: Fair enough. No, and I I like that. That's I have used the, the stove. I use that exact same yes, one multiple times. It's a great example of that. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of other complexities we could get into that. But I mean, that's like a probably a whole episode in and of itself. Um, right then mm-hmm. and there. Uh, just to talk about the problem of evil. Maybe we could do that sometime. It'd be kind of fun. I'm yeah. really enjoying this. So, But I ask every guest this, and we'll go ahead and kind of bring this to a close here. Um, and guys, go ahead and put in your questions in the comments. Uh, if you have them, that's okay. Because uh, there are certain verses and whatnot that you might need to be re-exegeted for you uh, when it comes to some of this stuff because, again, of our pre-lenses that we have. But there are actually answers for a lot of those uh, – not a lot of them, all the verses that you're going to bring up. So, But anyway, uh, real quick, uh, Warren, I ask every guest this, and yours – because your channel and what you do is so similar to ours as far as uh, – devil may care, somebody might get offended, but I think I'm going to talk about, honestly, about where I'm at in my position. If I'm wrong later, I'll admit it. But, uh, you know, someone who has that same idea of just, hey, I'm going to put this out here. It could be considered offensive and contrary to the norm, but it is what it is. Um, How does your ministry, how do you think your ministry itself can unite a divided body?
0: Hmm. I think by focusing on Christ as the sure foundation, and getting rid of false ideas about him, it, it 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 instinctively causes us to want to go to him because he is good, and I think that it result. I think it removes those divisions that would otherwise divide us. Because there's this paradigm between Calvinist and non-Calvinist, for example. I go there because that's my background, right? Paul Paul went to the Jews. Uh, I go to the Calvinist. It's kind of just you, you you go to the independent fundamental Baptist. You know, it's kind of That's that's where the Lord brought us out of, and that's where we go back to. But I think that if we can just get to the truth of who Christ is, the truth is what sets us free. And it's because of that that we'll be able to be united in in truth and, and love. So I really, I do my best to attack those divisions. But keeping focused on Christ, keeping focused on speaking truth in love so that, I don't want I don't want to come in and tell somebody they're wrong and then walk off. Just leave them there. I don't want somebody doing that to me. I don't have perfect revelation. You know, I'm still learning. I want somebody to come in and I want to do the same thing. I, I want somebody to come in and tell me, Warren, this is where you're wrong. Let me walk you through it. And now we're unified together in love. And I've demonstrated that and vice versa. Sometimes there's going to be sparks and sometimes there won't be resolution. But that's the goal.
2: Uh, absolutely, and that's what strikes me too. It's like, you know, people go. I, I've been told. Uh, we've been told uh, the church split, united, divided, divided body. More like dividing an already divided Stir body. That we pot. would call it pot stirers. <laughs> uh, and it's like, look, truth is offensive, and if you want to find truth, you're going to have to risk offending. You have to risk a challenging a status quo. And you know what? If the status quo is right, then your, your opinions and your views will be shot down easily. Uh, the problem is the more and more I've dug and scratched at these things, the less and less are able to be refuted. And the more I find my previous views being refuted, if anything. So um, I, I always ask everyone that because everyone thinks the church split because that's what we're called. We must be about splitting churches and causing division. I'm like, no, I actually want to unite people, but unite us through truth and object, being, trying to be as objective as possible without all the other stuff that comes with that usually. Well, and,
0: and to, to address that real quickly, too, yeah. like anywhere, anywhere where Christ is being preached, I can fellowship and consider someone a brother or a sister. Christ is the unifier. Right. So I can I can go into a Calvinist church, even though their doctrine causes me to convulse violently. Uh, but their their love of Christ, I can I can connect and I can relate to, and we can fellowship because of that. So Christ is what unites. And I can I can go into a Roman Catholic or an Orthodox or an Anabaptist or just pick a, a label. And if they're teaching Christ. That is what's going to unite. And so this divided body where we're letting these things, these preconceptions and these presuppositions and these doctrines of men, and sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong. But if we just focus on who Christ is, that's the unifier.
2: Absolutely. That's great.
1: I, well, I think too, you know, we talk about echo chambers a lot. And I think we really try to put our money where our mouth is tonight because there are some different views for people that are going I don't agree with this or I've never heard of this. And maybe it was interesting, maybe it was it was confronting some things, but at least you got to hear it. And at least you got to go expose yourself to some ideas that maybe you you haven't heard. I've had some even just watching um Idol Killer myself and going, Oh, hold on a second. And it is it is a little bit feels like the floor goes out from under you a little bit. And there's two ways you can respond to that. You can get angry and get defensive and not address it and not think about it and just move on. Or you can dive into it and use scripture to see where the truth is. And that's that's our challenge to everyone watching tonight. If you disagree with something, go to the scripture.
2: I'm just glad I'm not the only one who came started coming to these conclusions more and more. It's just funny because I found him like, this guy's been saying what I've been looking at. <laughs> Oh my goodness, this is awesome! So I was so happy to have this because I felt so.
0: But I think I think you and I have the same shirt on. We both have the beard, the glasses. <laughs> i mean, like, I feel like I'm looking at a skinnier, better-looking version of myself. Solely like, <laughs> because I'm, you. going- <laughs> <It's laughs> I'm younger
1: than you.
2: It's only because I'm younger than you. He looks time. skinnier because oh, yeah, he's yeah, sitting yeah.
1: next to me. That's I'm just making him look skinny. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's just funny because the more and more I study this, and then I I've got more and more interested in what the early, early, early church taught because i got so tired of like every time i turned here and turned there i was like okay i'm getting different answers from different points and then it just raises more objections and the more and more i've gone further back pre-augustine the more and more things have seemed to make sense and i'm like okay
0: i was was gonna say this is this is how bad it is out there though and and i say this so that people can kind of get an idea of the problem that we all wrestle against um there was a there was a lady i was talking to and, and she's saying you know I'm seeing a lot of problems with Reformed theology. I think I'm going to convert to Roman Catholicism. And I said, I said, well, before you just go in and, and do any of that, why don't you just start over with Jesus? Like, why don't you just go to him, study the Bible, study him, make sure you are grounded in the word, and then move forward and see what group or groups best represent your understanding of who he is so you can fellowship with like-minded people and they may challenge and grow you. I was rebuked for that. (laughs) How dare you send someone straight to Christ? They need to go through my church tradition. They need to go to this church tradition. Don't you dare send them straight to the sure foundation and the good shepherd because that's dangerous. And it is to these preconceived ideas and these systems of men. And so I just said, stop for a minute and think about what you're rebuking me for. You're rebuking me for sending someone to the word of God. That's not... The devil doesn't come in and go, hey, why don't you go read your Bible and pray more and really reflect on the, the good nature of God and your need for him, and, like your utter sinfulness. Like, why don't you do that? Like, the devil doesn't do that. So why are you rebuking me for sending someone to Christ? But that's what happens sometimes when your traditions are challenged. And I, I know no one, not everyone listening uh, is going to agree with me 100%. It, just, it never happens. My wife doesn't agree with me 100%. That's good. <laughs> I need to be challenged. Um, but at the same time, everyone needs to be challenged. And what I'm presenting here um, is 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 absolutely historically sound, and biblically um, defended, and, and, and established, and, and rooted. Um, you may not agree, but I am. I haven't spoke on anything that I haven't spent years studying on. And I don't say that meaning that I'm infallible. I just mean I've invested the time. I've considered this from every angle. This is where I'm, I'm at. If you're not there, then I hope that this at least challenges you to consider this angle among the many others so you can make an informed decision on where you think the Bible leading you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's fantastic. So guys, if you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to Idol Killer with Warren McGrew and you'll get more of this sort of thing. You'll get other random topics. You know, he's had uh, Chris date and quite a few other people on, you might learn more about the early church. You might learn some positions that you've never heard before, or maybe if you've been suspicious about a certain position, you might be able to hear it fleshed out better and actually have your suspicion confirmed somewhere. So anyway, uh, I don't want to take any more of everyone's time, but thank you guys so much for tuning into the, this special episode with the church split and guys feel free to leave any questions in the comments. We love you all take care and God bless. And we'll see you on the next episode.